Welcome back to the Global Quick Influence Podcast. I'm Panayota Pimenidou. To be up to date with news from the Global Quick Influence Podcast and suggest your topics, subscribe, like, and review the Global Quick Influence Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, Amazon Music, and four more podcasting platforms. You can contact the Global Quick Influence through the podcast, Facebook, and Twitter accounts, the podcast website, globalcreekinfluence.com and LinkedIn page. I'm happy to welcome again Dr. Kiyaki Sonidu, whom I hosted in May's 2020 episode, Medicine, Culture and History, from Pontus to the World, and the May's 2021 episode, The Internationalization of the Pontic Greeks Genocide. Dr. Kiyaki, or Kiki Sonidu, is a qualified GP and a specialist in cardiology. Kiki concurrently with her medical studies attended and graduated with a Bachelor in Law, also in Romania. She obtained an MSc in Family Medicine and General Practice with a distinction from the Medical School of Heraklion in Crete, Greece. Her medical training was in General Medicine in Piraeus and Athens in Greece, conducted research as a PhD candidate in cardiology between 2003 and 2008. Kiki worked as a consultant for a highly esteemed private hospital in Greece before she departed for London in the UK. Since 2008, Kiki has been working continuously in London for numerous hospitals and surgeries. She became a teaching fellow for gastroenterology at Ealing Hospital, a trainer facilitator for the STELI, or the Simulation and Technology Enhanced Learning Initiative Program of Imperial College of London, received further training in diabetes and endocrinology, and completed her three-year cardiology training, becoming Associate Specialist in Medicine in 2013. She has been working as a GP in the UK since 2015, became an NHS consultant and participated in outpatient cardiology clinics. Vicky joined as a member of the Hellenic Medical Society in the UK in 2014 and then she was elected as its treasurer in 2017 and now is the president of the Hellenic Medical Society in the United Kingdom. Vicky advanced her studies at LSE and Harvard University in global health delivery and systems, which will be the focal in today's discussion. Welcome to the show, Kiki. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I feel really honored. Once again, thank you for accepting the invitation to the Global Greek Influence Podcast. It's a pleasure to speak to me. When we first spoke, we were through the early stages of the first wave of the pandemic of a virus that we knew very little about. Having now the knowledge, not only for the virus, its evolutionary behavior, common characteristics among its mutations based on its structure, and genetic predispositions of various groups of patients, would you say we are close to the end of the pandemic, or is it too soon to tell? And why, as we might get another peak with another mutation, or with another new mutation? Very interesting question. I think COVID was a really unprecedented challenge for the whole universe. I don't think everyone recalls something similar. Maybe a few hundreds of years ago or a hundred years ago, we had some pandemics, but nothing as such. It was pretty new globally. And it lasted longer than expected. And it came to stay somehow. 
and we have not really got rid of it 100%, and I don't really think we will get rid of it so easily. We are not definitely at the same point when it was the outburst, when everything started from China, and uh, until we found out about the pandemic, we 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 had to wait for months until we realized what was really going on and how severe the whole situation was and how complex things were. And we had no weapons there and we were not prepared. And then we realized that we were kind of weak and we realized that we were not prepared for such uh, a pandemic, such a huge challenge. And of course, because we were affected globally, each country was affected differently. We were; It was not the same for each country. There were a lot of factors, multiple factors contributing to that and making in the, the COVID, the pandemic worse in some areas and kind of under control in some other countries. But we all got to the point where things were not easy and we could not control things. I wouldn't say we're exactly at the end. We are not where we were. We have more weapons. We have, the, the, the thankfully, after a short period of time, we had the vaccines. The vaccines uh, were prepared. We had similar COVID challenges. We had in 2003, we had the in Middle East in 2015. It was not exactly new, but it was not that much expanded. So people say, oh, vaccines appeared overnight. No, they didn't. There were years of research, but we had to give a lot of money to expedite their production and get to the final stages and deliver them and release them in the public to save people's lives. So we will live with the, with the COVID. COVID is, coronavirus will, was always there and will be there. And it has showed us its bad side, uh, it's a strong virus, and found us weak for several years. Our immune system, the ways we were managing our health, we became vulnerable. So this nasty virus attacked us and uh, showed us its teeth, as we say in a Greek expression, showed us the bad side and how aggressive it can be. It will not die. It has to have variants and mutations all the time in order to survive. Otherwise, the virus will die and it cannot die. So what we can say, we learn and we will learn to live with COVID. We will not have such a tremendous impact on our health and our health systems and our societies as we had in 2020, but we will have challenges on and off Different people, different groups of people, people who are exposed to risk factors, they will suffer a bit more, they will be more vulnerable. Some health system and some societies will manage the, the COVID attacks, crisis, uh, variants, mutations, better and some other less. We live with COVID. We, we are not as we were in 2020, but we still go through phases. From what we know so far from the new COVID-19 strain called Kranken, officially XBB.1.5, could the U.S. identified mutation become of concern? Uh, the new variant Kraken is another one at the same time, often uh, simultaneously. It was uh, identified initially in many countries, um, eight, 38, 39 countries, but a major or a more significant concern in the U.S., this variant is more spreadable. It's easier to spread. So the main 
dominant variant so far for us was Omicron, yeah? So Kraken was observed and there was spread and we saw a rise, a sudden rise in cases in a few countries and we expressed the concern as a similar subvariant of Omicron. If that could become the dominant mutation or variant of COVID, because we observe that it's spreading faster and more. You see some variants like XBB.1.5, as you said, that's cracking. These are numbers and letters for the variant, but that's for the virologists. They don't have any significance for the people who are listening. So uh, Kraken is like, a, it's a monster, you know, and uh, they start giving names of some funny monsters from kind of mythology or I don't know, just to show the aggressiveness or how this virus can transform. It's like a monster which changes faces. So we use these interesting names now for the COVID variants. Uh, with 4.5% of um the cases of the COVID cases in the UK, I wouldn't say it's the dominant variant. I don't know if it will become, but we don't have as much data so far to support this argument. It remains to be seen, but I believe we will have such waves of variants and cases, uh, variants, mutations of COVID, such waves in several countries. And um, that will show on the overall after a while with the data collection if it's something to raise a universal concern. The main issue is that you see the China the Chinese population were very, very isolated. And now they were they are released and they have these variants that they traveled across the globe and there were not really a lot of restrictions. And we, we were in again alerted because we were scared if we go back to a significant wave, what happened in 2022. But I repeat, we didn't have weapons against COVID then. We didn't have vaccines, we didn't have the antivirals, they didn't have all these things that we um, produced across uh, during the pandemic, and the, the pandemic in the last two, two and a half years. It remains to be seen, but I wouldn't say we should worry and say, oh, this is... A, a major threat and we should be worried and we should be, you know, as bad as we were in 2020 or 2021. We still have to be careful. We adopted some protection measurements and we need to keep those. If we do that and we follow the medical uh, advice and the guidelines and above all the World Health Organization guidelines, I think we will be fine. So we stress out at this point that in China, they had these prolonged lockdowns, not just because it's an overpopulated country and they have enormous cities where the density of population is really high. Also, the fact that they did not have access to the vaccines we had, or they had access to vaccines that were unsuccessful in preventing uh, the spread of uh, the novel coronavirus and its uh, different mutations? Uh, very good points. Huge population, um, many deprived areas. Important, you know, the deprived areas globally were more vulnerable and more affected by uh, the COVID. Ethnic minorities included uh, people who had genetic predisposition, people who had chronic diseases, people who had low immunity, um, 
access, limited access to treatments, to hospitalization, to ITU uh, in such a big, huge population, the spreading is uh, scary. Obviously, even if they have, I don't know how many hospitals or hospital beds or ITU beds, they wouldn't be able to manage all these people. So it was a dramatic uh Strict, uh, in, imposed, strictly imposed um, um, breakdown, sorry, lockdown, and uh, a lot of strict uh, measures uh, implied to the population and for almost, almost a year and a half, two years. They were so isolated. And you can imagine, if you are so isolated on the other hand, your immunity drops even more. Because you see what happens with kids. We, they were so... So, so um, restricted, and when they were exposed to school, to our activities, to the community, bang, tens of viruses attacking them again and again, and some viruses really strong, which even led to death. So it, it's the same thing, a very strict lockdown, isolated, good in a sense, in order to be able to manage the health challenges, but on the other hand, it makes you very vulnerable, more vulnerable. And when you're in an isolated environment for a couple of years and suddenly you are exposed again, of course you will be attacked by viruses. And we cannot say that your immune system is strong enough to fight them. So see what happens. And of course, if they were open to traveling globally, nobody could restrict them, but nobody thought it could be a problem until we realized it's a problem. We observe a variant which is easily transmittable in a variant, and that raised the concern. So we, we still follow the World Health Organization guidelines, and the adherence to these guidelines will protect us all. Which brings me to the following question. As you mentioned, while we remain for extended periods of time, um, isolated from other people, our immune system, or in a sense, the way that our body responds is not as sufficient, is because we are not used to, for long periods of time, to fight off viruses. According to data from many countries worldwide, we expect the triple threat of respiratory viruses, namely COVID, flu, RSV, why could the triple threat of COVID, flu, RSV become potentially another public health disaster? Uh, look, uh, what happened lately, the last few months, and the major concern was the youngsters, the toddlers, the, the children, up to age of 10, 11 years, um, we had uh, coexistence of two, three viruses. We had COVID and flu. We had COVID and RSV. Um, it seems that children went through the pandemic through COVID much easier compared to adults. But with this virus, they, they became, and they have proven to be much more vulnerable. They were very isolated, very um, restricted at home. They were not going to school. They were not participating in activities. And parents were really scared. And suddenly, a little one who does not have the same immunity as an adult, has not gone through so many infections in their lives, some of them, even younger, they missed quite a few of their vaccines, which were due for their age. But 
because of the restrictions accessing their GP surgeries. The people would not have face-to-face appointments with their GPs. They were not invited in their surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't have also a few vaccines and they were not protected enough. Some children, especially those with asthma or other underlying chronic conditions, they would have a flu jab every year. Some of them, most of them, missed them. So, of course, in the course of our life, we will get in contact, we'll we'll be attacked by some viruses in our community, in our work, in our environment. That creates some immunity. When for two years we didn't have this, obviously the virus became a little bit stronger and our immune system a little bit weaker. Not to forget, and it's important to mention that it's a mentality in many, many countries. It happens in the UK, it happens in Indian population, it happens in Greek populations. I have many examples, Polish populations. For many, many years, people thought that antibiotics are the panacea, is the the treatment, the, the best thing you can have. You have a bit of cough, antibiotics. You have a little bit of sneezing, antibiotics. You had a bit of viral symptoms, antibiotics. We have to admit that we abused antibiotics for many years. What we did at the end, more, much more stronger viruses, more resistance to antibiotics after that, it's easier for the viruses to attack our immune system. So all these factors and many more, of course, led to the problem we had. And for some reason, we saw coexistence or simultaneous existence of two, three viruses. Some group of children had unfortunately devastating outcome. We lost at least 15 kids between October, November, and a few in December. We had a few cases of children, literally healthy, children without underlying conditions. They went to hospital, they were sent home and they died a few hours later. We don't have, due to data protection, a lot of information. Their medical history would not be published and it wouldn't be appropriate to be published. But for the interest of, of the information and protection of the public health, something should come to light. And these are the authorities who will decide how much should uh, information we should get. But um, most of the cases, even with coexistence of the viruses, they recovered. But that taught us a lesson, what we should do in the future, how we should protect our immunity and how we should not abuse antibiotics in order to protect our health and become less vulnerable. You work as a GP, you are also an NHS consultant. NHS has been considered globally for decades as the most successful uh, national healthcare system. We read in the news about the crisis in NHS from patients having to wait for more than one hour when calling 999 to A&D waitings. Such challenges faced by NHS have been in the making in the past three decades. Why does one see such an emergency in primary healthcare in the United Kingdom? And I'm asking this question as maybe lessons to be learned for other 
national healthcare systems? Uh, that could be a huge discussion. And that's why I mentioned my training during the pandemic and not only lately, because I realized we need to learn a lot and we don't know a lot and we didn't pay enough attention to a lot of things. Right, going back to the NHS, I'm not an NHS consultant since 2017. I resumed my services to primary care only and became a clinical lead in primary care. And I also, I was um, a clinical lead for uh, the West London for the vaccination program. So I'll tell you what is going on, and it's not a secret. We kind of expected, and I was expecting we would get to that point when uh, NHS will suffer this crisis. We always had less stuff than we needed. I'll give you an example. Before the pandemic, we were saying, if we want the primary care to work efficiently, we must have at least another 5,000 GPs in working in primary care. We didn't have them. Then Brexit came and a lot of people left the country and they were not motivated or it was not easy to come and work in the UK. You need all this visa and bureaucracy and paperwork and God knows what else to come and work in the UK. So that left us with less people. They said after the pandemic, we are lacking at least 9,000 GPs. What happened during the pandemic? We were first line workers. We never stopped working. We were not seeing that many people face to face, but we were always there. We were going to the surgery. We were calling people. We were doing telephone and video consultations. And many people continue doing that. But 25% went off sick. A few of them died because we came in contact with COVID. We were the first people. I got COVID and I had no idea it was COVID. We had no idea because nobody told us early enough that it's a nightmare out there. It's a pandemic and it's a fatal virus is going on around the globe. So we had no masks, we had no gloves, we had no precautions, no protection, no PPE. So most of us got infected really early with a lot, a lot of trouble. And the recovery period was longer than expected. A lot of us ended up with long COVID. We didn't have treatment then. A lot of people had post-traumatic stress disorder. We are burnout, we are overwhelmed, we are tired. We work for two and three people in one. We work extended hours, we work until late evenings, we work weekends, we have no holidays, we have no bank holidays, we have no days off. What we, we would expect from that? And same with nurses and hospital doctors, not to mention what happened in ITU, those people who were moved to emergency departments, those people who were moved, anesthetists to support ITUs, all these people who needed intubation, all these people who needed escalation of care and treatment, so limited human resources, and we had to stretch them and we had to squeeze them to cover our needs, and we couldn't. And now... People are just breaking, they're tired, they're fed up, they're not supported, we are not respected, we deal with aggressiveness, we deal with disrespect. And not to mention the financial distress and the salaries which remain frozen and not increased as they should, and no obvious recognition, not substantial recognition, So you hear about strikes and people protesting and people saying, I'll give up. And if you would, um, we would discuss the surveys that British Medical Association 
conducted during the pandemic and after the pandemic, 80% of the NHS doctors are thinking of abandoning NHS in the next one or two years. What does it mean? We were not appreciated enough, even if people would get out at eight o'clock applauding, that was not enough. Practically, we didn't get what we had to get. We were not appreciated enough. And one stress and challenge would succeed another challenge. And now with the kids, we work. I work six hours in a row without break, without having lunch. How vulnerable I am at the end. How possible is it to make mistakes? Me and other people at A&E, because they have queues waiting for hours there. Very possible. The London Ambulance Service, the paramedics, they don't have time to cover all these needs. Of course, not only one hour. You might wait four, six, nine hours to get an ambulance. One, 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 same. People wait to be called and they are not called. So the government needs to realize they didn't do enough, did not protect us enough, and it did not provide enough human resources. So now they're dealing with a a big crisis. And we came to the point, we said enough. Most of us had support. Uh, And I had support, thankfully, provided by the NHS. We had counseling because all this madness we went through, all these deaths, all this illness, all these complex medical situations, we could not sleep, we cannot function, we are human beings, and all this stress had a huge impact on our health. So we are not surprised that NHS is under crisis. The, the waiting times for operations, for routine appointments, postponements, all the time, patients complain again and again. Severe delays, people are not happy, a lot of cancellations, there are not enough doctors, nurses to run clinics. They try to do remotely. True, things are missed. As long as we do things remotely, we can miss things. It's not the same when you see your patient, you have them in front of you and you examine them, but we try to find solutions to manage the workload, but we don't manage it so well. So now you will see how NHS will gradually collapse. Seeing all these um, lessons in uh, the United Kingdom, of course, you do not have experience working elsewhere in Europe, but one can understand that pretty much uh, doctors and nurses have had the same experiences across the continent. What lessons does one learn and see for primary healthcare in Europe from the pandemic period to best design future healthcare systems? That's truly a huge discussion. It took me um, an LSE course to to learn that in a few months. You cannot answer straightforward. Bear in mind that each country in Europe, let's say, and across the Atlantic, they have different health systems. They have different indicators. They have uh, different population. They have different vulnerability. They have different epidemiology. They have a lot of different things. In some countries, we have a lot of limitation. Bear in mind that we had different numbers of deaths, of mortality, of test rates, of demographics in every country. So we we cannot make a common plan for for each country, but each country should have learned their lessons by now and uh, they should um, appreciate the uh, health risks and exposure to protect their people. 
they should appreciate their determinants in health. Um, I mean, determinants in health can can be uh, poor mental health, uh, poor societies, people who live in deprived areas and they're very poor, they don't have a significant income. Don't forget that income and health are strictly related. People who work in big companies and they have private insurance, they will get better care and they will get less likely compared to somebody who lives in a poor area, deprived, he has a little salary, he doesn't have access. Some people have um, some precarious jobs and they're exposed a lot. So these people are tend to get more ill. Ethnic minorities, the same. So the economic recession has a huge impact on health and we need to look into that and we need to review and rectify any health inequalities. If we learned one thing in big capital letters from this pandemic in every country is health inequalities. As long as you have these ethnic inequalities, don't expect problems to disappear. It's not gonna happen. You will have more problems. As long as you have ethnic minorities, this will happen. For instance, in the UK, you have Asian minorities, black minorities, they were more affected, true. But if you go to Southall, where I work once a week, and I see the terribly deprived areas and what is going on there, you will understand why these people were exposed to death and COVID more. Um, if you go to the US, even if Afro-American, Afro-Caribbeans are 18% of the population, 33% were the admissions in the US hospitals. Why? Because these people were more vulnerable. In Greece, we have all these migrants or you know, refugees. These people have a lot of problems from mental health and a lot of other chronic health issues, which we cannot monitor. We were not aware of them. They brought them with them when they moved and they reside in North Aegean islands or whatever. The the way they live packed in tents, in, in camps, the conditions of living brought a lot, a lot of problems, not to mention the mental health challenges and other things. So in other populations in Italy, North Italy, you have the elderly. Where you have young people, you will have less mortality. But when you have aged population, that applies in the UK as well, you will have more deaths. So all these factors, I give you just some of them. You need to put them down. Every country needs to be adherent to World Health Organization guidelines, what they need to monitor, what they need to prioritize, find the vulnerable people and the vulnerabilities of their systems and try to rectify and invest more on health, on staff, try to collaborate between primary, secondary care. There needs to be bridges of collaboration. There must be collaboration between the private and the national health system, the private sector and the the public health sector. You need triage systems. You need to uh, create services that can access people at home or people who do not have immediate access to, to a secondary or tertiary care or even a primary care. You need to innovate and improve your health system and healthcare delivery. You need to learn from the mistake and the the lack of resources and and try to uh, rectify that and improve that. Some of the little things, the few things you could do to be prepared if another significant pandemic 
or health challenge attacks our societies. But that in very, very briefly, because it's a very, very detailed and very painful discussion for all these who try to fight these health challenges and they try to implement changes in the health systems globally. A September 2022 study by the World Bank indicated that, and I quote here, as central banks across the world simultaneously raise interest rates in response to inflation, the world may be edging toward a global recession in 2023 and a series of financial crises in emerging market and developing economies that would do them long-term and permanent harm. How would you expect a global recession to affect healthcare systems? Well, absolutely, that was one of the major problems during the pandemic, recession. During the pandemic, the GDP dropped. We were less productive. People were isolated. A lot of workers were restricted. So that a lot of people were left without a job. In the UK, we had a part of the population who had the furlough scheme, and they were taking 80% of their salaries. But how many people were able to do that? Those people who work for everyday um, payment or, you know, a pity salary, those people who were not able to work for a long period of time. I'll give you an example, taxi drivers. I'll give you an example. It was one of the vulnerable groups. Or other people who were not able to work. Obviously, these people suffered more financial crisis. A lot of people had to leave their houses. A lot of people could not pay rent. A lot of people had to move out. A lot of people had to move in with their parents. A lot of people had to move out of London. A lot of people had to move out of the country. So the recession was global. And then we had these repetitive challenges, and we had to provide for the PPE, for the hospital beds in some countries, okay, for the ITU beds, we had to invest more at some point in the health in order to offer decent uh, decent, uh, care to our patients. But did we manage to do it as much as we wanted? Obviously not. But when we had to use some of our resources, obviously that created more financial distress. So these people who are in financial distress, not only they were more vulnerable, but they never overcame the obstacles. And many, uh, many countries, many um, financial challenges were not resolved. And then we had the energy crisis, And then we have a war which is ongoing for almost a year with all the impact on the rest of the Western uh, countries. So all these continuous challenges did not give us the opportunity to flourish, to to overcome the challenges, to regain our forces, to heal. So we are still, and some people more, some people less, under challenges which have immediate impact on our health. And I don't think it's so easy with all these financial problems and instability and political challenges and energy crisis and um, all these people who cannot have access to heat and with the increased prices and with bad diets and poor health and poor feeding of their kids, recurrent and new problems appearing 
health challenges which do not put an end to what we go through. And I don't see an immediate way out of this crisis and these challenges, I'm afraid. We approach the end of our discussion, Kiki. In our immediate social cycles, we have seen many people being against the COVID-19 vaccines. Many scientists and professional communicators analyzed such social behaviors. For example, one can read in the Human Vaccines and Immunotherapeutics scientific journal about the dramatic increase in anti-vaccine discourses during the COVID-19 pandemic, a social network analysis of Twitter, focusing on Turkey, or in the New York Times, the anti-vaccine movement's new frontier for a wave of parents having been radicalized by covid era information to reject ordinary childhood immunizations with potentially lethal consequences. We also forget that history does repeat. Pandemic vaccine uproar is nothing new, and that the long strange history of anti-vaccination movements can be found in the past and what the past can tell us about the future of the pandemic. Also, many of us might say that vaccine hesitancy can be a major threat to the next pandemic. Could this be valid? And what could we do in such a case? Absolutely. Right. Um, to start with, I would say, with, with the vaccines. First of all, if we didn't have all these vaccines, most of us, we wouldn't be around now to, to listen to each other and discuss with each other. Every vaccine which appeared tens or hundreds of years ago, the, the, the population would react, react exactly the same, you know? Um, because COVID was something so new, which dramatically changed our lives, I think a lot of people were not well informed or because things happened very quickly, they didn't feel reassured or safe to proceed. But over the course of the months, we got more and more evidence and information. The truth is, and there is no doubt whatsoever, if we didn't have these vaccines, we, we would have double and triple numbers of victims from COVID. We would have hundreds of thousands. Of course, as I said at the beginning, the COVID vaccine was not created and vaccines were not created overnight. There were at least five, five, seven years of research. I can say for Sarah Gilbert in Oxford, uh, for the AstraZeneca vaccine, she was fighting for this vaccine at, since at least 2015, if not even before. So it's really unfair to say they just made them. Who just made them? For what? Vaccines were made to save lives, not to kill people. Every vaccine can have adverse reaction. If you read big studies, one amazing study was run in Scotland. It says the same mortality you would have you with MMR vaccine, hepatitis vaccine, tetanus vaccine, even with flu jab, you would have it with COVID. They were not worsening, um, worse or more scary or more risk factors or you know, things to make us hesitant or stop us from getting vaccinated. I appreciate and I don't dismiss the human concerns because of course, for everything new, even for every new drug, we felt the same. If you would read the bibliography, what happened when the HIV medication 
came out for the HIV patients in, in the 80s, in some countries, especially in Africa, everyone was against them. For TB, tuberculosis, it was exactly the same. What we say 30 years, 40 years after, thank God they didn't win. And the scientists impose these medications. How many people live with HIV that don't die anymore? Have you seen people dying from HIV lately? Only a handful of them. You don't see sarcoma caposi. You don't see pneumonia. Uh, people dying uh, from pneumonia, HIV patients. Why? Because we had to trust the scientists and work with them across the years and improve the medication and likewise the vaccines. And what we managed to do, we are in a position to manage the pandemic. We don't die, we don't get in ITU. We can get recurrent infections because it's like flu. Do we get flu only once in our life? Of course not. We get a few times, but we create immunity. Same with COVID. And because COVID has a lot of variants and it's more aggressive compared to flu, then pay the, the scientists will create new and updated vaccines every year. And I believe after a couple of years when we will create enough immunity and strong uh, T cells in our body, we will not be so vulnerable. We won't worry about these mutations and variants. So being anti-vaxxer is not wise. You have, of course, the freedom of choice, but I have seen a lot of patients of mine who said, I'm young, I have nothing, I will not get vaccinated. But when they ended up in hospital and two of them, 31 year old with memory disorder and irreversible neurological cha changes in their brain, there was nothing to be done after that. Of course, there were people who didn't know, who had underlying conditions that they develop adverse reaction. And we heard of cases of myocarditis. We don't dismiss them. There will be immune responses, which is impossible to predict or read or know anything about them. But we want to work across with the human beings with our patients, with our people and protect them and learn and improve the medication and improve the vaccines and protect them. What is our duty of care? Less complications, less illness, less deaths for God's sake. Every death of a patient for, for me and for every doctor is like losing a member of your family. It's not a political issue. And for many, many people, it was a political issue. It's not. It's not if you like the prime minister or the government or not. It's about health for God's sake, health and safety. We want all people around us. We don't want to lose anyone. No more deaths for God's sake. So people who realize that, I believe they're privileged and lucky. And at least, even if they get COVID, they will not go to ITU, they will not die. And we know very well this thing after two and a half years. Before my last question for today, Kiki, I have heard many people during the pandemic saying, okay, yes, these are old people. They would have died anyway. I have also listened to people saying, oh, yes, the governments are trying to control us. I've also heard people saying, oh, this doctor said, I can trust him. He's a doctor. If this doctor says that the vaccines have not been tested enough, I'm going to listen to this doctor. Of course, they make a choice to listen to one doctor or to two doctors, not to the majority of doctors, because the majority of doctors can be bribed. And one thinks, okay, is it easier to bribe two doctors or is it easier to bribe millions of doctors? 
I don't know if uh, the pharmaceutical companies would have that much money to bribe that many doctors worldwide. And then other people might say, if you say that uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine was um, planned and researched for since 2015, then how could they know there is going to be a pandemic and so on. So you see, it's ignorance. It's about people saying, oh, I heard this doctor, so his opinion is valid. I'm a scientist, Kiki, and I know that um, I'm always looking for evidence and evidence that is going to be uh, methodological and uh, the outcomes are reproducible. At the same time, because we have a broader audience, an audience that at the end of the day uh, might be educated, but they might not have had exposure to research and its methodology. What could we say to anyone around the globe whom to trust? Whom should they trust and why? Uh, you, you mentioned quite a few things, so I hope I didn't miss a point. First of all, to clarify something very important, you see how people can uh, just, it's not a distortion, but how you can change or misunderstand something. Uh, I said about the COVID, yes, we, I mentioned MERS, is the Middle East COVID pandemic we had in 2015, and then thousands of people died, but it was not on the news that much. And we had SARS in 2002, 2003, and then a lot of people died. And you know how many people die every year from flu and other viruses, and even before, but we it was not such a global effect, such a global challenge. So when in 2015, so many hundreds of thousands of people died in Middle East, then they realized and specifically Sarah Gilbert, this is a problem. We know coronavirus can cause very significant, aggressive um, infections in the population and spread very easily. If that would spread in a higher degree, what are we gonna do? And because of that Middle East crisis in 2015, they started working on a vaccine, which was initially thought it could be more useful or more needed in those people rather than the UK. But you see, COVID had different plans and we were not aware of them. Because if we knew, if it was planned, if it was directed, if somebody wanted to create a pandemic, obviously we would have the vaccines long before 2020. But we started according to, because you see, we, we, we observe the global challenges and scientists try to create weapons against these infections. We never expected a pandemic. But yes, if you ask me, in John Hopkins, they had scenarios. And in the US, uh, big research centers, they were having scenarios. If something crazy would happen one day, are we prepared enough? But it was proven we were not prepared enough. So scientists will always work on, on these challenges, but we don't know everything because when the facts come, the reality is different to hypotheses and scenarios. If you trust a doctor or not, to be honest with you, to my disappointment, I have to say, I had heard and observed a lot of doctors, especially Greek doctors who were against the, the vaccine. But to my disappointment, I repeat, many of them were politically driven. 
And when you ask them for clear evidence, clear data, there was nothing consistent there. While every research that was going on until the pandemic, it was exposed to public. I cannot expect average people to understand epidemiology or methodology. That's not the point. Even many doctors, many of us don't understand all these details. What we need is to understand the evidence. We need to appreciate the the clinical circumstances and try to eliminate the risk of death. That's our duty of care and that's what we did. And believe me, at some point we were desperate. We had to stop the deaths. If we haven't done all these treatments, many, many more people would have died. How could we control it differently when thousands of people were dying every day? What could we do? Of course, elderly people are more vulnerable, but there was another issue I wanted to mention. It applied here and it applied in Greece a lot. We, we, we wanted to vaccinate the elderly because, excuse me, we are not gods. We will not decide who will live or die. What if they're elderly? They still have the right to live until God or whatever you believe to, um, they he, he or whatever power decides to take them from the earth. Why would we say they're elderly, they would die anyway? No, we did an experiment, but we knew that some vulnerable people, people with chronic conditions, elderly are more vulnerable. And if they enter ITUs, they would not leave ITU. We have the duty of care to deliver service. I know we were to the point sometime we need to wait who should be prioritized to get an ITU, but then some people were left outside. But what happened to all these people who were not covenant, they needed ITU and they couldn't get it. They were sentenced to death, why? So we had to give everyone the opportunity to live and be treated fairly, equally, humanly. We couldn't discriminate anyone. So we had to grab every weapon when you're in a war, when you are in front of someone who comes to kill you, you grab stones, you grab metals, you grab weapons, we grab knives, you grab everything you have in front of you, trying to kill them before they kill you. And that's what we did. We might not have done everything perfectly, but when we were alive and we would return home and go to bed, we, need, we needed to think that we did our best in that day to save everyone. And it was not possible to save everyone. But, excuse me, I have to say to everyone, what I learned, people who suffered major consequences without being vaccinated, I didn't fight with them. I tried to inform, I didn't force them. I tried to convince them, but they came back to me. When they changed their mind, it was too late. Of course, we will have complications from from vaccinations and many medications. It happens every day in the whole universe, but you need to put on the scale life or some cases of potential complications. For me, life comes comes first, and I will do everything like many other thousands and millions of doctors globally to save humans' lives. And that's what we did. We were not bribed. Whoever wants evidence, we are happy to open our accounts. It's disgusting, excuse my language, to say we were bribed. There were not so many millions around to be bribed. To be bribed for what? To kill people, for God's sake. Otherwise, we would be killed ourselves. We provided evidence that we were vaccinated. 
I got vaccinated and I can tell you my experience for being three years, three months ill from COVID, not being able to work, suffering long COVID, suffering thrombosis from long COVID, suffering an operation could made me bed bound for a month. And I can tell you how I was spitting blood from COVID because when I got it, I didn't know anything about COVID yet. And we all found out three weeks later in February 2020. I can share my experience. So that motivated me to protect others from getting it. Then we live in democratic uh, environments, countries, most of us. Everyone has the, the freedom to choose. They want to get vaccinated or not. They want to be compliant or not. But we will all suffer the consequences of our choices. Just to put an end to this discussion, because it can, this this narrative, because it can take too long. But it's it's very emotional for all of us when we 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 went through hell and we still go through hell. Believe me. I know what you mean, and um, I'm not a doctor, but still, I was so tired of listening to these narratives of the anti-vaxxers. And by the way, I also read. Uh, the book uh, Vaxxers by Professor Gilbert and uh, Dr. Green. At this point, I would like to thank Kiki for agreeing to speak to the Global Greek Influence podcast again. It is always a pleasure to talk with you and share a scientifically informed daily outlook on medicine. Thank you very much. It was a privilege and an honor. All your audience who had the patience to listen, sorry if I put a little bit more emotion sometimes, but you know very well, and whoever knows me, I'm so straightforward and so uh, direct, and I can't. I don't have the privilege. This this uh, privilege many people have to lie. At least I know in my consciousness. And as long as I do this job, and as long as I perform as a doctor, and until I leave this world. I only have one duty of care to look after people and save lives. And I know even if I'm criticized or I can go through a lot and we went through a lot and people swearing at us and accusing us and uh, cursing us, I have to say, I, until my last day on this life and earth, I want my peace of mind and consciousness. I did my best to save life. And that's the purpose and main scope of my life. And I will never feel guilty about it. Of course, Kiki, because you cannot work that many hours every day and expose yourself to such dangers without really loving what you do, no matter how much money you uh, one gets paid, you don't do anything, you don't follow any profession. Uh, for exactly. any amount of money if you don't love it. If you're not dedicated, because we have no life. For the last two years, I have no proper holiday, no rest, no life, nothing. But I don't regret, because I know I have helped a lot of people, especially those with mental health, with anxiety, with depression, suffering after the pandemic. Every little help, it's part of humanity and why we are around to help and support each other. And that is my recognition and my payment because money, if I'm not healthy, if I'm not happy, mean nothing. I can leave this world tomorrow and I will take nothing with me. So it, it's pointless. I work seven days per week and not only me, but I say, as I said many times, this is our dedication and devotion. And I'm not regretting for that. Thank you again, Kiki. I was really happy we had this discussion, even though not at the beginning of the pandemic, but we have it now, now that we know more about it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
Not the pandemic, the discussion, of course. The discussion, I got that. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. We still learn. We still have a lot to say. And I'm happy to discuss. I'm open to discussion and answer questions and help people even a little bit with these discussions and put their mind at rest that we are around to help. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for staying until the end. Stay tuned for another podcast episode and get notified by subscribing and following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music and five more podcasting platforms. Your feedback and suggestions also help us become better. Until next time.